On this day, 22 years ago, four planes hijacked by terrorists crashed into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and a field in Pennsylvania, killing nearly 3,000 people in a matter of hours. We all remember where we were on this day. I was planning on making my way home from the Frankfurt Auto Show 22 years ago today, and then it happened, and America was under attack, and it was incredibly tough not knowing what was happening, worrying about family back at home, and helpless. No way to help from afar. I've told that story a number of times, and maybe I'll get into more of it along the way, but I got a nice note that she sent out to a lot of people, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, which starts, Today marks 22 years since our nation was attacked by terrorists, motivated by hate and evil. The memories of that tragic day remain etched in our hearts, and the names and stories of the men, women, and children who lost their lives will forever hold a special place in our collective memory. September 11, 2001, forever changed the course of our history. Congresswoman Dingell went on to say, I clearly remember that day, the chaos, the panic that marked Washington as I watched the tragic events unfold from my office blocks away from the White House. Today is a reminder of the first responders, from firefighters to police officers to volunteers, who worked tirelessly in the aftermath of this tragedy. Their unwavering bravery served as a beacon of hope and resilience during those dark days, ultimately uniting our nation in a way that we had never experienced before. I will add that President George W. Bush went a long way in uniting our country at that time. The Congresswoman continues, I hope you will join me today in remembering the lives lost in these attacks and honoring the first responders and volunteers who worked tirelessly to help unify our country. Today is a reminder of the strength of our country and that we are stronger when we are united. Signed, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. Uh, great sentiments, well put. I wish we could get something like that from the current President of the United States who has decided to be the first president since those 22 years have passed by to not be at one of the memorial sites or have a memorial at the White House. He is in Alaska speaking to troops, I guess. We will never forget. I, I think I opened my column. I don't have it in front of me, but I, I believe I opened my column with saying, you know, this will... It'll never just be September 11th. It will always be 9-11 to many of us of a certain age who remember it and will not forget. And in New York City, they are reading the names as they do always. 22 years later, the reading of the names this morning. In 60 minutes, if you can go and find it, and you can online, yesterday, 60 Minutes basically ran their show that they aired on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, two years ago. And it really is a wonderfully put-together program that catches you up or gives you the opportunity to show your children or your grandchildren Nieces and nephews, exactly what it's all about that we're talking about, because they don't remember. 
and this will help them see just what was going on. And it was extremely well done. 60 minutes yesterday, if you can find that. Since we've been away, the earthquake in Morocco taking thousands of lives and the aftershocks continue. In Hawaii, a volcano eruption, as if they haven't had enough on their plates. The volcano Kilauea has erupted again. And at Michigan State University, today should have been a fabulous day, coming off a great football win, but even more importantly than that, the news is out. I read it in the Detroit News, Kim Kozlowski. Michigan State University has reported preliminary fall enrollment of more than 51,000 students with its largest undergraduate class and most diverse student body. How about that? That should be the headline. That's what they should be celebrating today. Not the weakness and faults of their football coach. Now, look, I know there's lots to think about and to talk about and maybe argue, I don't know. Some people are upset with how long it took before there was action. Would there have been action if this story didn't show up in USA Today? But this is in three different segments, and this is... I appreciate my management so much for not telling me what I can or cannot say or talk about. You can't believe how much that happens in radio and television these days. Well, you can when you see that, but I'm telling you no one said anything to me, and I'm glad because here's my thought. This is in three parts. The question as to why the hell it took so long to come clean with this and to take action with the coach. Now, number two, we've got the whole Title IX thing. Okay, I understand that. There's not even a hearing yet. It's in October. That's fine. But, my friends, the third and most important issue at hand right now is Mel Tucker's contract. And the moment they heard Mel Tucker say, in trying to make things okay with Title IX, I guess, but not thinking about his contract. And by saying, yes, yes, I did that, but but it was consensual. My friends, it didn't matter if this woman begged him to do what he says he did. It would fall under his moral turpitude clause. His contract is guaranteed, but there's a clause, like most contracts, that allows, in this case, Michigan State to terminate it without payment if he, quote, engages in any conduct which constitutes moral turpitude or which, in the university's reasonable judgment, would tend to bring public disrespect, contempt, or ridicule to the school. A finer point, moral turpitude, defined in one definition as wicked, deviant behavior constituting an immoral, unethical, or unjust departure from ordinary social standards such that it would shock a community. So by his own words, he did all of that. Regardless if she said, don't do that, don't do that, and hung up, which she didn't, 
or she said, please do that, please do that, doesn't matter. Why? Because in the society, still, it matters if you're married when you try to have any form of other sex with another person. And he said he did. So the question for me right now is, why hasn't Michigan State taken advantage of that contract and that clause? And they can still do Title IX in October and everything else. This is over and above and separate from Title IX. By his own words, he said he did this. And therefore, he has shown that he has broken that clause in the contract. And here's another situation where I cannot figure out why Michigan State University would wait and take even more valuable time without moving on. And frankly, from a business standpoint, saving $80 million that was not well spent, clearly. Just asking. And I feel so bad. For Michigan State students, athletes, and alums who have nothing to do with this again, they watch their school suffer in the eyes of the country and of the world. This was on the national news last night. Lessons must be learned and proven that they're learned through action. Paul W. Smith, in focus on WJR. As we continue in focus, glad to have you with us. You can also join us at thegreatvoice.com, thegreatvoice.com, and get our podcast of the whole show or the individual interviews, whatever you'd like. We all remember where we were, those of us of a certain age, 22 years ago today. Our own Brian Morton was in New York at that time, and Michael Bouchard, Sheriff Bouchard, made his way to New York with fellow deputies and others to help out. That's the way it was 22 years ago, and that's the way Sheriff Michael Bouchard is, always stepping in to help. And when he gets back home, he remembers home, and he knows that we have our own fallen heroes. And so... A number of years ago, Oakland County Sheriff Michael J. Bouchard created the Michigan Fallen Heroes Memorial. And they have an annual September 11th ceremony. I'm honored to say that I was there a a few years ago helping out as Master of Ceremonies. Unfortunately, it starts at 2, which is fortunate for you because you can get there. I cannot. And you would join Sheriff Michael J. Bouchard family members and survivors of Michigan's fallen heroes, members of law enforcement and firefighting agencies, Metro Detroit Police, and the fire pipes and drums will be there, and they are excellent. Sheriff Bouchard, I really appreciate your work day in and day out, but your special work, I remember 22 years ago and speaking to you on 9-11 and beyond, and then when did you actually start the Michigan Fallen Heroes Memorial? Well, thanks for having me on, Paul Debian. And can you believe it? That was seven years ago that you were the MC. That's how time's going. 
Wow. That, that is amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> I know. I looked at that and I was like, oh, golly. Um, so actually, my plan was to do a statewide police memorial. We didn't have one in Michigan. There was a statewide fire memorial, um, but not a police. And after I got back from working at Ground Zero side by side with firefighters, and it just drove deeper into me, we work side by side with the men and women of fire service every day. And on that day, very tangibly vivid reminder to the country, they died together. The largest single day loss of police and fire in our country's history. And hmm. it just felt like we should make this memorial to be the first in the country combined statewide police and fire service memorial. And so I pivoted a bit and that's where we are. Well, it, it is fabulous that you've done this. And we remind everyone that there are people still dying who were first responders at 9-11 and became ill. Right. And the number is a, is exactly a high, right. high number. What's that? You're exactly 100% right. And it raises kind of a sore topic. <laughs> the bureaucracy of that fund, the 9-11 fund, responder fund, is so intense. It's taken me seven years and lawyers to get our responding team approved if they have a identified health related to potentially that work. And we've had two members of our team that went to have cancer or got cancer. And they are definitely under the qualifying. It took me that long to get it approved. Seven years to get money or get them recognized from the 9-11 fund. You can only imagine what it was like for all the other families that lost their heroes after the fact. And that's what it was set up for. Back to what you're doing today, the Michigan Fallen Heroes Memorial, 1200 North Telegraph, Building 38E in Pontiac. That's the northeast corner of Telegraph Road and County Center Drive East, the north entrance. Parking is at Building 38E, the parking lot. I fear that once again this year there are new names etched on the memorial. You're correct, sadly. Uh, we have over seven, I think 800 names on the wall now, and we're adding that will be unveiled today seven more police and fire service names. Hmm. Yep. So it's a, it's a constant thing. So that's why we continue to raise money. We have great friends that do charity golf outings and cookouts and things. This is all privately funded. And we've actually been able to raise enough money recently that we've now begun to give out scholarships to kids that are the survivors of fallen heroes. Oh, how so great is that? Three this year. That is fabulous. This is reminiscent of what they're they're doing. The I'm not I can't remember the exact name. You would know the tunnel to bridge or what the the, the national what is it called? Tunnel to towers. Tunnel to he the towers. Deep. He lost his brother. Uh, 22 years ago today, so he has had this motivation to have this great organization. But locally, too, we have the 500 Club, which started in Detroit uh, many, many years ago. And uh, it continues to this day, where if we lose a police officer, if a police officer leaves his home, it, all of them know, firefighters, police officers, first responders, 
there's a chance they may not come back home. There's a it's in there. They don't they don't want to dwell on it or they couldn't do their job, but it's there. And with the 500 Club, as you certainly know, Sheriff Michael Bouchard, if one of those police officers, firefighters, first responders goes down, the 500 Club gets a check to them immediately. And because the fact of the matter is, as we say, oh, my God, it's so bad, this young police officer with his young family and young kids has has been killed, the people that are owed money, the mortgage, the car payment, they have no heart or soul. They're just payments due. And 100%. Bill Packer, William Packer, and his dad and grandfather, I think, maybe just his dad, but whatever it was, saw that and took care of a young police officer who was down. Young, young wife, young babies. And it's gone from there, and now it's all over the country. And it might be all over the world. The 100 Club. the hundred. I think I called it the 500 Club. The 100 Club of Detroit, and uh, in fact, their dinner's coming up soon, and I'll be happy to join George Blaha in the uh, MC category to help out on that one again coming up. But that's what it kind of reminds me of. And in a sense, in a sense, Michael, it's unfortunate that it's left up to private dollars to take care of these public servants. No, you're right. And you know, Bill and his dad before him have been such a visionary and so incredibly inspiring and helpful. In fact, we've got a couple of people being honored at that dinner this year that you'll be emceeing. But I'll tell you, that makes a huge difference because there are some benefits that do come from the government, although they're not lifetime, they're a stipend. But that takes time and bureaucracy. I just told you what it's taken just to get approval from New York, which is a fund that's been established for years and years. Yeah. And so that immediate check helps with those payments that are hanging out there that are terrifying a family with the question of not only what do we do without that loved one and that void, what do we do tomorrow with our bills? Yep. Yep. Sheriff Michael Bouchard, Oakland County Sheriff Extraordinaire, the Michigan Fallen Heroes Memorial Annual September 11th ceremony starts at 2 today. Out there at the Memorial, 1200 North Telegraph Road, Building 3080 in Pontiac, northeast corner of Telegraph Road and County Center Drive East, the north entrance with parking at Building 38E parking lot. Thanks for establishing that a few years ago, and thanks for the work you do and all the men and women you represent every day, Michael. Thank you, my friend. We appreciate you and your constant, steady support. It is my privilege my pleasure, my honor. We can't help enough, but we'll do the best we can as we continue on WJR. So nice to be, whoops, sorry, Uh, but so nice to be back with you here on WJR at the start of the week. And you can go to thegreatvoice.com and Find us if you can't be here noon to two, if that's inconvenient, to find us uh, on those podcasts and uh, join us. I hope you will. Um, we know about the, the pending auto strike seems unavoidable, although, although uh, UAW President Fain actually said he saw some movement from the Detroit Three uh, despite inadequate uh, Stellanus offer. Okay. And the front page of the Detroit News today, Temps, tears, take center stage in UAW negotiations, different pay, benefits for the same work in unions, crosshairs, et cetera, et cetera. 
nationally, they say an auto strike will likely occur later this week, according to analysts, as contract talks between the nation's big three automakers and the United Auto Workers Union appear to be stalled. The current contracts between the union and the three automakers, General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, expired 1159 on September 14th, raising the possibility of one or more strikes September 15th. Uh, the guy that we follow and enjoy all the time is Daniel Howes, the senior editor, business columnist for the Detroit News, and he's here to weigh in with his thoughts on what's going on and the very latest in this important week that appears to be inevitable that there'll be a strike. Daniel, always a pleasure. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. Um, I'm gl- glad to hear that. I uh, I think uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think we're probably sleepwalking towards some kind of strike, or strikes plural. In fact, I don't think you can get through this period of hot rhetoric and and theatrics without having some kind of work stoppage at one of the companies, or potentially more. Um, I mean, I think if we strike more than one company, particularly three companies, we'd be in the historic territory. Um, but uh, I think there's rising anxiety in the part of the automakers as to how they're how this is going to net out. Clearly, they are taking Sean Bain more seriously about having to get a deal done before the deadline. I mean, historically, you and your listeners know that, you know, we've gotten up to deadlines in the past and we've continued contracts uh, and wrapped it up a day or two or three or four later. Uh, I think Sean Fain has indicated they're not going to do that. He's he's, and, he's, uh, he's been very clear about that, in fact. You're right. Yeah. Because he said something like, that's not a suggestion, uh, or I, I'm not exactly sure how he worded it, but let me just say back to what you said. You're right. If they don't have it done by then, they're striking. Right. And, 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 and oh, by the way, the one thing you left off of your lead-in is it's going to happen right as the auto show uh, charity preview happens on Friday the 15th. I mean, can you imagine um, a bunch of picket signs uh, and folks picketing the uh, charity preview? If they do that, if they do yeah. that, it will be my pleasure to point out a lot of their problems and inequities in payment for workers. Like, hey, does Sean Fain make more than the guy on the line? Why would that be? Secondly, <laughs> I'm serious. I'm dead serious. I'll say it till the day I'm dead. Well, wait a minute. Now they'll try to kill me. But I want people to join us at Huntington Place this Friday for the North American International Detroit Auto Show charity preview. You'll see fabulous cars. You'll see Jennifer Hudson. And you will be supporting the auto industry. Whatever line you stand on or on one side or another doesn't matter. You don't take this out on the kids that will benefit from the charity preview. You don't do that and survive in a healthy environment. Well, and I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I think a lot of us expect that it's a good chance that it will. Um, look, this is th- th- we're, we're potentially cruising towards a, a, a bit of a black eye for the industry. I mean, we've gone 15 years. Now, we did have a strike four years ago, as you, as you well know, 40 days, General Motors, uh, in part because UAW President Gary Jones was under the legal gun, as it were, and uh, and a lot of people believe and still believe that that was a bit of a diversion. This, I think, is a much bigger deal. Um, you've got an industry that's been doing pretty well. They realize they're going to have to open their wallets. The question is how wide they open those wallets, 
and to what extent they revisit some of the bad old days uh, with things like a, re a renewed jobs bank and, and some other things that we thought had been dead and buried, like cost of living adjustments. Uh, but the, the union seems to be holding pretty fast to some of that stuff, and we'll see kind of how it develops. And even some of the car companies, I think Ford is, has made some cost of living adjustment uh, off, uh, offers in their in their counter proposals. So we'll have to see how it plays out. Um, I personally think Ford is more likely to be the lead company here, uh, the company that they try to get a deal with first. Uh, at least that's how it's been looking for the last few days, last week the end of last week and into this week. But that, that can change uh, on a dime, frankly, at this point. So it is, it's not just my imagination. Um, it, it seems to me that and through a lot of work at Ford, that the UAW and Ford seem to get along better than the UAW and General Motors and Stellantis. Is that a, a an observation I'm making up or is that true? No, no, I think that's true has been true more or less for, for, for a pretty long period of time. Seems uh, to me. Now there, are, there are people that will tell you that back in the day, Ford had that distinction before because Ford was way too generous with the UAW uh, comparatively to the other companies. Um, but uh, right now, uh, strip all that away, right now their vice president is Chuck Browning, who clearly has the most experience and the most national bargaining experience of the vice presidents. Uh, Chuck is highly respected at Ford. He's highly respected in the industry, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. uh, when there was a lot of churn at the top of the UAW before Sean Fain ever came along, uh, a lot of people thought that the next president of the UAW uh, ought to be uh, Sean Fain, or not Sean Fain, um, Chuck Browning. And uh, um, that's obviously not the way this has worked out. Uh, but Chuck is highly respected, and, and a lot of people believe he understands the industry and he understands how to get a deal. And I think that's really one of the key pieces here, Paul, is, is um, you know, one of the knocks on Sean Fain had been that uh, when he was on national bargaining in the Stellantis department is that he couldn't, he couldn't close the deal. And I said, some people have told me, said, well, what does that mean? And I said, because he's not willing to compromise. So, you know, we're going to, we're going to see because you're not, no side is going to get everything they want in these negotiations. Ever. Uh, so, and that's just not the way it works. So you can't just keep repeating your 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 demand and think that eventually the other side is just going to say, okay, we give up. Um, you get what you want. I don't think that's going to happen here, um, and it's going to be a question about who gives where and who gives what. Um, no question with people are going to be getting paid more money, um, but the devil really, as they say, is going to be in the details. And I want it, uh, like anyone listening should want it, I want it to be completely fair and pay the workers a fair wage and the workers understand and accept that. And I want them all to get back to work and do what they do that's caused for them through their work at the auto plants a pretty good life. It's a pretty good life compared to what it used to be, and it will get better. But it's not going to be good if they shut it down for weeks on end. That's right. It just won't be. We've watched it happen over the years, you and I, Daniel. They can hardly ever make up. So, I mean, if they feel good about doing this for future workers at their own expense, they're different than a lot of other people, but God bless them. 
but we should get along and do well, and everyone should be allowed to make a good living and work together. We should be proud of the company we work for, not call them the enemy, not decide not to shake their hand in the beginning. I mean, there's so much here that upsets me, Daniel, but God bless you for keeping an eye on it and keeping your emotions out of it. You always do a nice job. Take care of yourself, my friend. I will. Thank you. You too. Daniel Howe, Senior Editor, Business and Columnist, Detroit News. And the most positive thing we've seen is the UAW President, Sean Fain, seeing movement from the Detroit Three despite inadequate Stellantis offer. There's always a hook. As we continue on WJR. All righty, uh, looking forward to Chris Renwick. A nice uh, show, as always, on JR Afternoons. And I think, I'm not trying to twist your arm, Brian Morton, but I recall from our morning show days together, you were in New York City on 9-11 22 years ago, and I'm I'm hoping that uh, you can talk to Chris about that coming up uh, from uh, 2 to 4. Yeah, we were playing on it. Yeah, I was there that day. That you we were, were there. On vacation, yes. I remember it well. I remember it well. All right, good. We'll look forward to that conversation. Brian Morton, our own Brian Morton, 22 years ago, happened to be in New York City on vacation on 9-11. All right, uh, we've got other problems, issues. Uh, We should be celebrating the news that uh, Michigan State had great news today. Let me me read it the way the headline is because it's, it's what's important here. And it would have been a big... Story. Well, what did I do with it? it? Anyway, it's about the fact that they they look like they're they're breaking all kinds of records in terms of the new classes. Hey, here it is. MSU enrolls its largest undergrad class and ups diversity. That would be what would be celebrating today, if sadly, unfortunately, Mel Tucker didn't make such a huge error in judgment. That being said, Todd Flood is here, uh, a great Detroit area attorney, with the story uh, from a legal standpoint, I guess, on what uh, might have been a he said, she said, but it isn't. Because it's more like a he said, she said, and then he said, he did do this. Which changed everything, in my opinion. And Todd Flood, nice to have you here. Thanks for having me, Paul Debbie. I look at this as, uh, and I feel bad for, well, I feel bad for the whole state of Michigan. I feel bad for this woman. I feel bad for Mel Tucker's wife and kids. I feel bad. I, I, there's a lot of sadness to go around here. But to me, for the university, it's about maybe three different things. One is people are upset about the time it took before anyone said anything or did anything some of this back to December, some of it back to July, whatever, whether they didn't really know that he had said, he, Mel Tucker, had said, yes, I did do this, but it was consensual. Because part of this has nothing to do with it being consensual or not. The second part is the Title IX, and that in October will be a hearing, and that should go on as scheduled. But the thing that gets me is Mel, Mel Tucker's contract as revealed to us, yes, it's guaranteed, but a clause allows Michigan State to terminate it without payment if he, quote, engages in any conduct which constitutes moral turpitude 
or which, in the university's reasonable judgment, would tend to bring public disrespect, contempt, or ridicule to the school. I looked well, up the the I looked up the definition of moral turpitude. Forget about that. He did. This is moral turpitude, but there's nobody who can say in the world that doing what he admitted to doing as a married man could be anything other than something that brings public disrespect, contempt, or even ridicule to the school. Yeah, without question. So there's two buckets, right? The contract bucket, as far as that goes, he's out. Uh, He can be fired easily um, for violation of the clause within his contract. That's kind of a no-brainer. The Title IX issue, um, you hit the nail on the head. This is um, normally the policy, as written, shouldn't take more than 90 days. Um, This is not a complicated matter. Um, It's going to be a he said, she said. Uh, Consent is a defense uh, to to this. So, you know, she deleted her text messages or whatever the case may be. He's going to have his day with a hearing that that really Title IX, you have two alternative two outcomes. You either get disciplined or suspended or fired. So uh, the contract covers it all. This is kind of a no-brainer. In the contract, the sad and ugliness of he should, this really I, does. I, I hate this, but he should be fired now. I mean, they don't have to wait for Title IX. This is a separate issue. This is a yeah, clause in his you, contract that he broke. No, 1,000%. So um, it besmirches the university, and his judgment um, is so lacking and so failing how can you put him in front of kids right now yeah, right uh, he had look with straight faces the best job of his life and he has blown it uh, thank you todd flood very much we appreciate you always as we continue on wjr well good afternoon to you uh, the sun is shining unless it's in the middle of the night and you're listening on the which i sure hope you will i know noon to two is difficult i've heard from you that that unfortunately, noon to two, you can't get close to a radio. But the good news is you can always get thegreatvoice.com and get our podcasts, including the entire show. And they edit it down so you can listen to the entire two hours in like an hour and nine minutes. And it's uh, it's very well done, and I appreciate the work of the people behind the scenes that make this happen. Go to thegreatvoice.com for the podcast. It can be the individual uh, interviews. It can be the whole show. And it's real easy to do, and you press a button, and and they download it to you and your favorite uh, listening device, if you will, wherever uh, you might be, whenever you might want it. All right. Um, Boy, uh, we're starting a new hour. We kind of like start off the whole thing again as we remember that it was 22 years ago today um, that we were attacked. And uh, we all remember of a certain age where we were, what we were doing. I was, I was in uh, Frankfurt, Germany, just finishing up on the Frankfurt Auto Show, and hoping to get home and unable to. It was very bizarre being in another country watching America under attack, and very frustrating not being able to get home to protect my family. I mean, I, I didn't know how I was going to protect my family. Nobody knew what was going on. I think. I don't know, Brian, you were in New York when, when 9-11 happened, so you weren't at the Fisher Building. Anybody in the room there? 
I'm not sure anybody in the room there with you now was in the Fisher Building. I think that they even emptied out tall buildings like the Fisher Building in Detroit, if I remember correctly. Anybody remember that? Uh, Marie was here. She's standing by. She she Marie was in the did, Fisher Building that day. She what, says. Did, yeah. did they, Marie? Did they? Did they? put people on alert in the Fisher Building or do something? Well, I don't know if they evacuated our building. I do know that all of us here had to obviously stay on duty. We continued to work well into the evening hours. Um, I know that people left the building that day. I think people just... I mean, I know that they left other businesses as well throughout the city of Detroit, but we here... I mean, I, I was sitting in the studio where I am right this minute... Uh, watching a television with Dan Streeter and Dick Hafner when that second plane hit. And we, uh, Dan Streeter turned to the two of us and said, this is an act of terrorism. Yeah. I, we had never, uh, you know, obviously witnessed anything like this. It was all so confusing. And so for the rest of the day, we stayed here on the air. And we were broadcasting from Frankfurt the next day. Yeah. Still. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of time spent trying to, calm people down and let them know we were okay, that the world was not imploding, although we really didn't know for sure what the heck was going on. Uh, but 22 years later, here we are. They've been reading the names. They did earlier this morning in New York. If you can find the 60 minutes from Sunday, and I'm told you can do that, um, if you find the 60 Minutes they ran this past Sunday, it apparently was the program they ran two years ago on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And it was very, very well done and maybe a way to let people who weren't around or weren't old enough to remember it, or even for those of us who remember it very clearly, to see some of the things that were taking place and the way it happened. I thought they did a very fine job, and I would recommend it to uh, to anyone. So there's a lot uh, going on. Um, this is the first president of the United States uh, who is not at one of the sites that were attacked or having an event at the White House Memorial. He decided to go to Alaska, and it's the first time a president didn't do any of the things I just mentioned, but he went to Alaska, and now I'm seeing a word that his Vietnam news conference sparked some age concern. Now, again, our world is divided into two major sources of information, Fox News, which is saying Biden's Vietnam news conference sparks age concern. And uh, CNN, which probably isn't saying anything like that. I don't know. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Um, but we, I mean, what else do we need to prove that there's age concerns for him? I get into arguments like this all the time. I'm not putting down an old person. I'm not saying there should be an age limit. But there has to be some kind of cognitive test that might tell us that, say, Mitch McConnell or President Joe Biden or, say, Nancy Pelosi or, say, Dianne Feinstein and maybe 10 or 20 others, I don't know, of a certain age that may not be wearing it well. And 
there's nothing wrong with figuring this out when they have the important jobs they have. This is not a put down of old people by any stretch. It's a realization that as we get older, we're not at the top of our game the way we were 20 or 30 years ago. Does anyone deny that? I, I don't know. I don't know how you can, frankly. I just don't. So we have that. We have um, we have the um, poor Hawaii. We have a volcano blasting off again. Uh, Hawaii doesn't need anything like that. We have uh, the Moroccan uh, earthquake. Thousands of people dead and missing. We got a lot going on, and we have a good positive. Note, from Michigan State University, this should be the only story today from MSU. This from Kim Kozlowski in the Detroit News this morning. Michigan State University has reported preliminary fall enrollment of more than 51,000 students with its largest undergraduate class and most diverse student body. It is unclear if MSU will have the state's largest enrollment because the University of Michigan, which holds that title, is not set to release its fall numbers until October. But there's some great positive news that should have been the only news coming out of Michigan State. Instead of the front page, MSU suspends Tucker amid sex harassment allegations. Call with rape survivor consensual, coach told Probe. But you see, while he was quick to make sure he didn't, in his opinion, break any Title IX rules by saying this was consensual, he said clearly that he did do this sexual act while she was on the phone. And here's the problem. Title IX aside, put that on the other shelf. The fact of the matter is, in his contract, which is guaranteed, but there is a clause, like in many contracts, that allows Michigan State to terminate it without payment if he, quote, engages as any conduct which constitutes moral turpitude or which, if you don't want to worry about the definition of moral turpitude, or which, in the university's reasonable judgment, would tend to bring public disrespect, contempt, or ridicule to the school. I'm sorry, folks. Doing what he says he did do as a married man is wrong and breaks that clause, which means they can fire him, sadly, depending on where you stand on all this, but that's the reality. I'm dealing in realville here. And by the way, the university saves $80 million that seems to be not well spent anyway. One good season, one bad season, one season before this as a head coach. How did it get to that? I don't know. But because some people are going to be wondering the time it took from the first opportunity to come clean with this in December, maybe they didn't know everything because everything's secret in Title IX. Or in July. Or whenever they heard him say, well, yes, I did do that, but it was consensual, they should have realized it didn't matter if she begged him to do it or begged him not to do it or maybe hung up the phone which he should have, but he did it. He said he did it. It's over. MSU, 
What's taking you so long? Don't Have you not learned how people are reacting to your actions and your inactions? I'm not saying this to attack you. I'm just talking about what the reality of where you are now. Go ahead with the Title IX. That's great. But this is a done deal. The contract has been broken by its own contractual language. We continue on WJR. Now, anybody listening to thegreatvoice.com doesn't hear the music playing behind me, and they think I've lost my mind, which, in fact, I may have. Marie Osborne uh, checking in with us. Uh, Let me just uh, check something very quickly. Uh, A lot of different things going on in front of me. Here we go. Thousands of K-12 through teachers have left the profession in the last decade. Some districts are struggling to find subject-qualified teachers for their classrooms. Our senior news analyst, Marie Osborne on WJR, reports some districts are taking a second look at virtual teaching as a way to fill those vacancies. I thought we... I thought we found out that virtual teaching didn't work so well, Marie. Well, let's start there, Paul. Three years ago, at the start of the pandemic, millions of kids were forced to learn from teachers who were on a screen. By most measures, the results were disastrous. Students still struggling with skills they should have mastered a couple of grades ago, which means learning grade-appropriate material right now is that much harder. What we're talking about here is something a little different. There are several companies that are now offering virtual teachers who are highly qualified in their field. Things like, say, calculus or physics or advanced English. These viral teachers are then paired with a paraprofessional or teaching assistant. Those people are in the classrooms with the students for a physical presence. The proponents say that this pandemic online learning was haphazard and not thought out. Hmm. This type of teaching, they say, is specialized, deliberate, and organized with teachers highly qualified in their fields as well as versed in the technology to make the presentations dynamic. Proponents say this is an answer to teacher shortages and key disciplines and far better than having a rotating cast of substitute teachers in the classroom. Classroom learning is done from large screen projectors in the front of the classroom. Students have their laptops and in-person teachers then work through small groups in that classroom to ensure that the kids understand what's going on. Now, there are some drawbacks here. Here are the criticisms. These programs are very expensive. Early research shows that often students say they prefer to have in-person instruction. Some experts say this is not an idea which has proven results, at least not yet. And there have been anecdotal evidence that some kids leave the classroom halfway through the lesson and some parents claim they're not fully informed that their kids have been assigned virtual teachers. But again, Paul, for school districts that are looking for teachers in these highly specialized areas, this might be an answer that they need to consider. Man, that makes me sad. It makes me, you know why it makes me sad? Because... I can't help but think of and look at the bigger picture. You know, it's the way I I can't help but think. And this goes for teachers and for nurses, by the way. Why are there shortages? Look at that. And we ought to address that problem. There's clearly a systemic problem 
in the teaching field, which is so very important, and in the nursing field, which is also so very important. We can't just keep throwing bandages on these problems. These are hemorrhaging issues that 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 push us into saying, oh, I know, here's what we'll do. We'll do it virtually. Mm-hmm. When we already know how difficult that is and how our kids suffered when we had to do that, we thought, or were made to, because of COVID. So why don't we, instead of wasting time coming up with these little fixes, why don't we take a look at this pandemic, the pandemic of not having enough teachers and the pandemic of not having enough nurses? Marie, I'm, I'm, I don't <laughs> well, know what to we think don't, or say. We don't have enough doctors either. I mean, there are not enough uh, primary care or internist doctors. A lot, a lot of them are leaving uh, that profession. Pediatrics is another one that's suffering mightily. I mean, this is happening across the board in a lot of vital professions. Uh, this is being offered as perhaps one solution. Uh, we're doing virtual doctor visits, so you're wondering why don't we do yeah. virtual teaching in some cases? Hmm. I know. Uh, well, I, I mean, I don't have a quick answer. Uh, it, it Certainly part of it is money. It's not always money. And money, you can't throw money at things. We've done that, and it hasn't worked. But money is certainly a part of it. These these people need to be paid as much as they can be realistically. I, I don't know what jobs are worth anymore. You know, I think of our auto workers, and as we are on the precipice of a strike there, that's I never like strikes of any kind. But I have to be aware of any suffering that people are doing. Now, I will say, in the auto industry, aren't they all making close to a hundred thousand or or more dollars? Uh, you know, they can make that with overtime. Rod Maloney was on with uh, All Talk earlier, and he was saying how with or overtime, some workers can make a hundred thousand a year. Yes. Okay. All right. With overtime. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and in this case, virtual teachers they say are necessary to ensure kids of all backgrounds have access to coursework that can propel them into their dream college or career. Again, these are the teachers in these areas that are highly specialized. Again, we're talking about calculus and physics and a lot of sciences, some of the advanced English literature type things. Yeah, those teachers are hard to come by, very hard to come by. Mm, and and courses that, by the way, uh, the Chinese have been teaching their kids all the time, for as long as I can remember. And I've never heard of a teaching shortage in China. Have you? No, but they look th- at things a little different. You, yes, will, be, you will be a teacher. You will, you will, you will be a I, teacher, you're right. and you'll all like right. it. You got me. You're right. <laughs> you will teach, and you will be happy. Yes. Wait a minute. That was uh, the old Nazis. I don't mean to admit. Yeah, no. That's not what I meant. I don't know how to do a Chinese accent <laughs> yeah. for that without getting in trouble. Anyway. Yes, geez. best we leave that. <laughs> I'm just gonna Come on, take fact, my hand. I'll get you out of the I'll get you out of trouble. Come on. Get me out of here. Thank you for saving me. Mm-hmm. Marie Osborne, WJR Senior News Analyst, as we continue. Do 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 do. 
Hey, happy birthday, Clarice Michaels, the parade queen. It's Clarice Michaels' birthday today. Call her. Wish her a happy birthday, for goodness sakes. All right, uh, keeping track of everything going on around us, we talked uh, earlier, uh, 22 years later, the reading of the names this morning of the 9-11 tragedy. I mentioned to you, if you can find uh, yesterday's 60 Minutes, they replayed their 20th anniversary, and it's a great way for people of all ages for some of us, relive, which is not a great thing, but we do need to be reminded and we should never forget. And for kids who have no idea what we're talking about, it was a good special 60 Minutes. You can still find it. Now we have Evan Brown, our Fox News correspondent and WJR contributor. As the bells toll, as the U.S. marked the 22 years since 9-11. And uh, nice to always have you on, Evan Brown, and we shall never forget. Uh, no, we, we shall not, especially if, uh, like for those of us who were in the New York City area that could see everything happening, uh, it's it's really something you don't forget. I, all these years later, I, I certainly haven't forgotten pretty much most of what I remember from that, you know, what I saw. Sure. Uh, I, did, I did write things down back then, so I'm able to kind of go back and, and refresh my memory to certain things, because as, as we get older, we forget little things here and there, but... Sure. Um, uh, but I, I do have, have some vivid memories of that day. I was sitting in a car uh, stuck in the approach to the George Washington Bridge on the New Jersey side, watching two giant uh, skyscrapers, which I had just been in mere weeks earlier, taking some tourists through some friends mm-hmm. uh, and uh, seeing, uh, you know, counting the stories of how high the flames went, which those buildings were just enormous. Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, then uh, getting over to the Hudson River lookout of the Palisades Parkway and looking through the binoculars where we're plunking in the quarters, right? Remember those binoculars? Sure. Uh, and um, watching the buildings fall through through those binoculars and then uh, hearing a very loud sound, a roar coming from the north from behind me. And I turn around with a bunch of other people. And there's a very low-flying fighter jet. So low that we had to hit the ground, cover our ears. It was so deafening loud. Uh, and uh, we saw the afterburner. It looked like that scene from Top Gun where the plane mm. takes off from the, the, the carrier deck. And yeah. uh, I just remember thinking to the, you know, if I could just, you know, console that pilot, that he, he must know that he's too late. Yeah, well, you know, that's funny because uh, I never, I if I ever heard that, it's because I heard it from you, frankly, uh, Evan, in the past. I had not heard it at the time. You know, I was stuck in Frankfurt, Germany, at the uh, the Frankfurt Auto Show. And I was getting my information from American feeds that we could get. And I'll never forget, the first thing we heard was that a small airplane had crashed into the World Trade Center. So we're picturing like a Cessna or That's- something. Exactly how my morning began. I, I had heard that. I was out getting breakfast. I, you know, I got back into the car afterwards to hear that it was not a Cessna because I had thought maybe, oh, you know, the Cessna, some pilot hit the side of the building. You know, these, these things happen. Um, but no, uh, it uh, that was not the case, and that's why I drove further south from where I was in New Jersey to get a better look. Um, and, uh, you know, what's, what's interesting today now, 22 years after the fact, is that next year we'll have another presidential election. You're very well aware of that. Uh, but there will be people voting who are not yet born. Oh, my. 9/11. Isn't that something? Well, even more reason that they go back, find it on their computer online somehow, 60 minutes from yesterday, which was 
the 60 Minutes they played two years ago on the 20th anniversary. It was a sunny, beautiful day. A gorgeous day. And, uh, you know, we started putting we, we started putting together that this wasn't just an accident. And we didn't know for sure. And I remember I was sitting there listening, and I think it, we picked up Good Morning America or something, and Diane Sawyer said, well, there's been no word if this was uh, uh, related to terrorism. And I thought, Diane, why would you say that? Well, it turns out well, she was know, right. The, the first one was like, my God, what a horrible accident. Then there was the second one, and I thought, okay, we're obviously under attack here. And then, well, again, while I was sitting in the traffic of the George Washington Bridge facing Manhattan, I hear them break in. You know, New York has the, the, the luxury of two all-news radio stations. You know this. 1010 uh, wins. And, and WCBS. And right. uh, I forget which one I was listening to at the moment, but uh, they announced a third plane. And my instinct was to look to my left to the Empire State Building, and I saw oh no plane. I said, well, what are they talking about? There's no third plane. And then they said, the Pentagon. And that's when it got even more real for me. But this was not going to be isolated to a single city to a single metro area that this yep. and then there was a report of a plane down in cleveland that you know all these erroneous reports which eventually right. turned out to be the plane in shanksville pennsylvania um but uh, the, the fact that it could be multi-cities uh, is what really hit me hard and made me feel sick to my stomach there in that car and i could see the other people in their cars listening to the same radio station because our mouths opened all at the same time you could see them in their cars there's several things I'll never forget, obviously, and that's true for all of us who were alive and remember these days. But one that comes to mind is when the late Peter Jennings was on the news, and he had a reporter on location uh, at the World Trade Center, and the reporter started getting very anxious and saying, the building, the building's collapsing, the building's coming down. And Peter said, hold on now, Joe, hold on, let's let's keep it together, that's not happening. And then a moment later he said... Oh, my God, the building is coming down. <laughs> the reporter, you, it, it might have been N.J. Burkett, who was a reporter for WABC-TV. I remember that something very similar where he had to run and get indoors with his cameraman real quick. Yeah, um, I, cu- and, I couldn't uh, remember his name. I yeah. just remembered Peter. Yeah, no, no, that, if, if that's the one that, that you are not talking about. I remember seeing that at some point. And, and I also remember Mr. Jennings later on, maybe an hour or so later, where he, he lost his composure on camera and just told everyone, go find your kids, hug your kids. For those of us old enough, and there are fewer of us, remembering uh, 1963 when President Kennedy was assassinated and we watched Walter Cronkite for the first time ever get emotional in telling a story. We we had been grown uh, we had grown accustomed to the to the non emotional newsman because we had we had moved on from the over emotional news reels of thirty years prior to that that played in movie houses. I mean, most people heard of the uh, of the uh, pa- pa- uh, Pearl Harbor attack through a newsreel. Oh yeah, right. An over the emotional announcer, you know, <laughs> in a stereotypical yes. mid Atlantic voice. Um, but people weren't used to that, to that emotional newsman in the 1960s, and certainly not in, in 2001. Yep. So nice being with you and having you share your thoughts and your story on this day, 22 years later. And I guess we could say today it's from ground zero to Alaska. Don't even get me started on that. Eben, <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> Thank you for your help. Take care.
Evan Brown, Fox News correspondent, WJR contributor. Okay, I'm just talking about the first president ever since in 22 years, not going to one of the sites, not having a memorial moment at the White House, but being in Alaska today. Yeah, that makes sense to me, too. We continue on WJR. Oh, this is the start of the week. Uh, we're getting excited about Auto Show Week. This is it. We'll be broadcasting. The whole team will be uh, from WJR f- this coming uh, Wednesday and Thursday. Then Friday, of course, it's Charity Preview. My pleasure to help out emceeing the uh, the uh, Charity Preview and the ribbon cutting. And then we'll have a special broadcast. I think Lloyd Jackson and Marie Osborne uh, handling the duties until I can get over there from the ribbon cutting. I think the broadcast will be 6 to 7.30, if I'm not mistaken, uh, 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. this uh, Friday. Meanwhile, I, it's time to uh, dress up and show up to support our local community, both the auto industry and six children's charities at Huntington Place this Friday, the North American International Detroit Auto Show Charity Preview. Uh, We'll see some uh, fabulous cars, the incredible Jennifer Hudson in concert. Uh, Go to NAIAS, as in the uh, NAIAS uh, dot com, charity preview tickets, I guess is the best uh, way to go ahead and do that. And the Detroit Auto Dealers Association, DADA, today announcing one lucky Detroit Auto Show visitor may purchase a chance to win their choice of a Chevrolet Corvette. Uh, Ford Bronco Raptor or Jeep Grand Wagoneer. Doesn't that's not right? One lucky Detroit visitor may purchase a chance. No, everybody should be able to purchase a chance. One person will be the lucky winner. I'm sure that's what they meant there, from the uh, the uh, PR firm. Anyway, so there's that. And then you heard me mention our good friend Michelle Murphy, executive director of Variety, the children's charity of Detroit, where you can buy a special ticket. A VIP ticket throughout the show, throughout the entire show. You can go to Michelle at VarietyDetroit.com, and you'll be you'll be helping. You'll see the show, and you'll be helping this wonderful children's charity. Michelle at VarietyDetroit.com. That's over and above all the people you'll help at the charity preview. We've talked to Perry Johnson just recently, businessman, local GOP presidential candidate, and he's uh, he's making some good noise again. Perry, welcome back to the uh, Paul W. Smith Focus Show. Well, thank you for having me. You are now saying you've started a pack, and you've committed to matching a million dollars for politically persecuted moms, dads, and grandparents. Explain this. Well, some of you may not be aware of the fact that they decided to go after the electors. These are really not activists. They're just people that love America and vote. And they were asked by the president of the United States to become electors in the event that something happened in court and the court ruled that the elections were probably not run in a valid way. If that had happened, we have a technical procedure that has to be followed in order to continue with our election process. And these people essentially just said they volunteered and said, yes, I will do it. And now, despite the fact that the assistant prosecutor told Dana Nessel, that's the attorney general, that there is no grounds, they have no grounds to charge them with anything criminal. 
she went ahead and criminally charged them anyway, and now they have to defend themselves. Is he, is the RNC, it, let me ask you, we've got uh, presidential candidate Perry Johnson with us, one of our guys from this area. Uh, did the RNC step up to help these people? No, they did nothing. They're doing nothing. These poor people, you have people here. The one lady was crying. She is on Social Security. They're, you're talking about people that are in their 70s. And you have people out there that love this country. They didn't do anything they thought was wrong. And in fact, what they did, I can't even determine how anybody can say it's criminal in any way. All they're doing is things that they think are need to be done just to follow the Constitution. If something were to have happened in court, and now here we have them being prosecuted, they don't have the money to spend one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars for an attorney. They can't defend themselves. They're living on Social Security. Mm. So you have these poor people that are just now totally devastated. And so I said, this is just not right. And the RNC will not defend them. So I say, I have to step up, and that's what I'm doing. So I'm pledging to match dollar for dollar up to a million dollars to help defend this group because it's just not right. No, go to defendthem.net, defendthem.net. Listen, Perry, are they going to let you in on the next uh, uh, debate? <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it, what happened at the last debate? I, get, I, I meet all the requirements, I get all the polls, and then they decided that they were not going to count the McLaughlin poll uh, because Trump had hired McLaughlin at some point. Then they said that the other poll, the victory poll, that's fine, except that the pollster, who is very technical, ended up doing a whole analysis, and that he mentioned that in this analysis, they take 800 out of the possible voter pool of people that are going to vote in the primary, which is, what, about one out of 100,000 people. And in that, 38 states were covered. They said, well, the 38 states being covered, that's, that's not sufficient. We got to run. We understand. We remember. And we'll be looking for more from you digitally and on TV and right back here on WJR. Defendthem.net. Stand by for news. Jay Afternoons with Chris Renwick. Make it a great rest of the day as you make each and every day count. Each day is a gift. Regards, Paul W. Smith.